Ephesians. Let's pray. Father, uh, this morning, I'm just going to share some things that uh, I, I just really sense could be really freeing for some people and to understand, again, your life and your grace and your love toward us. And so, uh, Lord, I, I want to ask you to do what I can't do. And, uh, and, and you come and, and make this real and alive to people, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, have you ever done anything you wish you could wipe out? <laughs> yeah. Okay. I guess I don't have to go much further than that. A decision, a comment, an act you wish you could wipe away. Uh, while I'm not a criminal, um, uh, there's still some things that I've done that I wished I hadn't, things I said that I wished I hadn't. And it sounds to me like there's a few of you in here that would say the same thing. I want to come back to that in a minute. But I want us to read in Ephesians. We're going to start at uh, chapter 1, verse 7. This is our third week as we're going to walk through this because we really want to grow in our understanding of learning to be the church Monday through Saturday, not just the church on Sunday. There's a phrase throughout here. I don't know if you've done this yet. I would encourage you to make sure you write in him, highlight, underline, underscore the little phrase in him, through him. It's talking about Jesus in all of those places. And you begin to see the key to everything in your life in a relationship with God and the church. Verse 7 says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Can I start over? Let's go back to verse 6. Now, to the praise of his glorious grace that he favored us with in the beloved. Now, in him, we have redemption through the blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. I love this word that he lavished on us. He exceeded. He went beyond anything. And he gave us the best, the greatest, the grandest, the most. He lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to the good pleasure that he planned in him. For the administrations, or some of your translations might say dispensation of the days of fulfillment. It's, it has to do with stewardship and the way that God has orchestrated and begin to unfold history. To bring everything together in Jesus, the Messiah, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. That's part of what we get to do. That is a present and a future tense thing where we get to be part of bringing heaven to earth because we have the heavenly one, Jesus, that lives within our life as we've entered into a relationship with him and we now are in him. Verse 11, in him we were also made his inheritance, predestined according to the purpose of the one who works out everything in agreement with the decision of his will. And we talked a lot about predestination last week. So if you want to go online and listen or see that, uh, feel free to do that. So that we who had already put our hope in the Messiah might bring praise to his glory. That's our purpose, folks. Everything we do in this life Everything that takes place once you come to Jesus is to bring glory and praise to him with what we do and who we are. Verse 13 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in him, when you believed, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. 
Why? Because he is now the down payment of our inheritance for the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. Now, verses uh, 3 through 6 in chapter 1 declare the works of the Father in the past. And we kind of looked at a, a number of those last week where we saw that, we were, that God, Father God, chose us in his Son, Christ Jesus. He predestined us to be adopted through Christ Jesus. Spiritual adoption, as we talked about last week, speaks not of how we enter into the family of God, uh, but how we are involved with the family of God. And really, it becomes the central issue of security. Because once you are adopted in, you can't be unadopted. The fathers of those days, they could disinherit, they could disown their own sons, but if they adopted somebody, well, they were in for good. And it really speaks of the security that God wants us to understand that we have through Christ Jesus. And then it says he, this lovely word, he made us accepted in the beloved. Well, that's, that's Jesus. Are you starting to pick up a pattern here? It's all about Jesus, and everything comes and is systemic, and once we come to him, it's all about him and living in him, living with him, walking with him, being about him. Now, that word the, uh, accepted is kind of a lovely word. It, it means to be embraced, I love that. I'm, it's not just that, oh, I like you. It's, but I'm being embraced by God. It also has the idea of being highly favored. Same words that were spoken to Mary. Remember when, she was, when it was announced to her that she would be the mother of the Most High, the Messiah? What he's saying is, is you know, we're just like Mary. We are highly favored because guess what? We, we give birth to the life of Christ in us and through us once we come to him. We begin to be caught up in Christ's embrace. Why? Because, well, we're in the beloved Jesus. Now, the reason I backtrack and digress just a little bit in ch into chapter 6 is because you've got to learn this. You have to learn that when you come to Jesus Christ, you are fully accepted. It is not about what you do. It is about what he's done. But so many of us begin to get on a spiritual treadmill of trying to prove ourselves and do for ourselves what we think we got to do for Jesus Christ and what he's already done. We get caught up in what? Oh, I feel this. I don't feel that. I hear it all the time about what people feel and don't feel. It's not about what you feel. You don't have to take your spiritual temperature every hour. You don't have to wonder, am I in? Am I out? Am I hot? Am I cold before God? When you understand the position that Father God has given you in Christ Jesus and you respond to it, you don't have to go through continual introspection. Yes, some evaluation of where you are before him, but it isn't like you know, every hour, okay, okay, am I doing the right thing? Am I doing the wrong thing? It's simply living in the presence of Jesus Christ. If you don't get that, if you don't begin to understand that, when we get to chapters four, five, and six, and he begins to get in your grill and start nailing some things that we are called to change in our behavior, you will not be able to do it without feeling like God's getting rigid with you or being very religious. But when you understand what he's done for you and who you are in him, well, then you'll be able to go, yes, I can do that. I can change. Well, why? Because he loves you. 
But if you don't begin to grasp this, loved ones, and this is why so many people become so stinking religious, and they ride this spiritual roller coaster because they're always trying to figure it out instead of just doing and becoming and living with Jesus. This is a driver. This is an implement of great victory in the hands of somebody that can hit it, or if you can't, it's a weapon of mass destruction. <laughs> now, I'm an all right golfer, and, and, and there was a time when the driver was probably one of my best, I had the most confidence in it. In the last probably two months, this club has killed me. It has been a weapon of mass destruction. It's so bad that when I stand up to hit it, I'm not kidding, I am thinking about 107 things. And if you're a golfer, you know this, you can't do that. You've got to walk up there, think of two or three things, and then boom, just let it fly. That was great. <clears throat> and that's exactly why I'm having trouble with this thing. But you see this club... I get up to it now, and I'm not kidding you. I, I, I'm going to break it because uh, I, I, I think, okay, my hands, okay, my, my stance, my feet, okay, too far, oh, uh, uh, okay, hand. I mean, there's, I, and, I, and, I, and I, oh, gosh, I don't know what's going to happen with the ball. <laughs> and you know what? And the ball goes, cr I mean, it's, it's bad. <laughs> now, just like in golf or whatever you, you do that you've got to think about before you do it, Spiritually, it's the same thing. Some of you get frustrated. Some of you careen off here and there because you are so consumed with getting everything right instead of simply coming into the life and walking with Jesus. In golf, they call it paralysis from analysis. So you can't even take the club back and relax and hit the ball. And some of you have a hard time walking with Jesus because you're trying to figure out, does he really love me? Did I do something wrong? All oh, my thoughts, oh my gosh. And you can't wonderfully enjoy the life of Jesus in your life because you're suffering, you know, spiritual paralysis from analysis. And part of what I want you to get today is to understand how much God has done for you and how much he loves you. And quit thinking about everything and just do and move forward and live in his life. Why? Because as we read in verses 7 through 12, you can celebrate the work of the Son in the present for your life. Again, we went through here and we noted in him, speaking of Jesus, this is important because if you are in something, if you really understand the love of God for you, you become identified with that and soon you're embraced by it and you become engulfed in it, and it becomes your identity. And whatever you're identified with, well, that's a good thing. So now we want to look at this. Well, what do we have to celebrate in Jesus? And we're going to look at some more of the spiritual blessings that are noted in verse 3. Remember the question I asked you at the beginning? How many of us, if we could change something of our past, would do it? If I could go back and undo those things, how many of us say, yeah, that's true? Now, now raise your hand. Just be real honest. How many would say, you know, come on, raise them up. I say, oh, maybe, I think, I might. Now, raise them up. Let me see, how many are here? There's some things you change in your past. Yeah, can I tell you what that is? If you could do that, it would be called redemption. 
But see, when you're in Christ, it is because of his grace and this act of redemption that we noted in verse 7 and later on in verse 14 that he underscores and emphasizes that we get to experience that. See, redemption is an important theological word. It's kind of like a mountain peak in the range of spirituality. It has these kinds of meanings. It means to pay a ransom price for something or someone. Hebrews 9, 12 gives us an example of that. It also means to remove a slave from a marketplace where they've been sold into slavery. It means to affect a full release. Has anybody seen uh, Pawn Shop, the reality show? they got a couple of them out now. It's really a pawn shop scene. And if you watch those shows, you know, you kind of, you kind of, excuse me, but you kind of got some of those smarmy people, you know, working behind the counter. And what do they do? They take in goods, they give a, a lesson price for it so they can turn around and sell it and make a profit on it. And somebody else comes in and buys a higher price for it. But what has happened is, is the original owner has given it to them and it is devalued by the pawn shop so they can turn a profit. It's a powerful, wonderful picture of what happens to every one of us in this room. When we're born into sin, into this life, we automatically, we have the image of God upon us, but we become devalued because we've been sold out to the, well, to the pawnbroker, Satan. And what he wants to simply do is hold on to us because the scripture says we're the apple of God's eye. There becomes this this eternal cosmic conflict between God and Satan. Who's going to get the apple of God's eye? But because we're born into sin, we're automatically placed in this pawn shop where our lives become very devalued by Satan. Aha. But the picture of redemption that it talks about here through Jesus Christ is the the lover of our soul, Jesus, comes to bring full release. John 8, 34 says this, that he who commits sin is a slave to sin. See, that's the slavery part. Really, we're slaves to what we don't want to do. Paul said it in Romans 7, what I do want to do, I don't do. What I don't want to do, I do. That's slavery. You can't control that. But because of Jesus' coming and the fact that he would redeem us, he pulls us out of the marketplace when we come to him and we begin to live in the freedom of his redemption through his death on the cross and the shedding of his blood for us. Why? That's what buys us back. That's the payment that Jesus made so that we could be redeemed. See, once we're in Christ, once we're in relationship with him, and now opens the door for him to take all of the destruction out of our life to redeem it. Those things that we would raise our hands and say, wow, I wish I could do, get a do-over for that. Even the destruction that most of us, some of us have brought upon ourselves. Comes to, Jesus comes to bring value to those destructive things of our past. The prophet Isaiah prophesied this in Isaiah 61.3. He said that God would give us a crown of beauty instead of ashes. That Jesus would come and give us the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and he would give us a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. You know, how many of us feel like we're just kind of in this burned-out heap? We're despondent. We despair over way too many things. See, if you're really in Christ and you understand what his redemption has brought, 
you can live with hope and you can know that this Jesus Christ through the presence of his Holy Spirit comes into your life to reconstruct it. And he gives you, the Bible talks about these garments of praise, these garments of righteousness. And because you are right with God now, you can praise and give thanks for who he is and what you have and where you're going and what God wants to do in and through you. But so often, don't we get stuck? We kind of get stuck and focused on our issues and our problems. But Paul makes one of the greatest statements about redemption in Romans 8.28. Many of you probably know this. He says, and we know that in all things, God works together for good for those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. Ephesians 1 tells us that we are called and chosen before the foundations of the earth. What? Well, for his high purposes. How many of you find yourself saying things to yourself that are destructive? When you're driving along and all of a sudden you go, I'm such an idiot. Or is that just me? I don't know. But, you know, know, you're going, "I'm, I'm kind of a failure. I'm a rotten parent. And we begin to rehearse whatever it is, fill in the blank. We all have different things. And we rehearse all these stupid words and mistakes. Can I tell you something, friends? That becomes a habit and ultimately will become lethal to you. It will become toxic and bring soul damage to you. If you think that way long enough, you will simply move into a self-fulfilling prophecy and you'll soon begin to live that out. But here's where redemption can enter. The redeeming life of Jesus Christ into your life. The Bible says in Romans 12, 2, that you are transformed. You can be changed by the renewing of your mind. We now, as we'll see in Ephesians 4 through 6, that God gives us the power to begin to get control of our mind because he is in us. He lives through us. We've got the Holy Spirit that's living in us and bringing change and transformation. Now, some of you probably are sitting there going, well, <laughs> Terry, You don't know what I've done. And thank God that I don't ever need to know. Unless, of course, you want to tell me just to get it off your chest for prayer and encouragement and how to take care of it. I'm fine with that. But God knows. And he can redeem whatever it is and take every destructive thing and turn it into, listen, your benefit and for the benefit of the others if you just simply allow him to. Listen, all of us know people. We have people in this room. We are going to have people in next service where their life has been splintered by alcohol and drugs. And now they're able to help people around them because they're honest, they're open. They're saying, I didn't have it together. I'm not perfect, but I'm chosen. I'm predestined. And God is at work in me. (laughs) Does that give you hope? We see people like that. And then we got other people. They've been exposed exploded by adultery or pornography. And now they're helping bring healing to other people. Just in this last week, I talked to just a dear, dear friend who just recently, he, his, his, his pornography cost him his family. But he came to me recently and he said, Terry, I just want you to know, the most difficult thing in my life, the greatest damage that has ever happened to me has now brought one of the greatest places and points of healing because now I know what was wrong within me so I can change that for the future. 
Now, he's not saying it doesn't matter what happened. He's just simply saying that God has worked a new thing in him and taken the most darkest thing in his life and exposed him to the light of Jesus Christ, and now he's growing in and through it. That's what redemption is about, loved ones. And when you come to Jesus Christ, when you live in Jesus Christ, that's what he's talking about here. Now, he moves right from redemption to the forgiveness of sins. Note the focus that once you've been bought back, you're released from slavery, and because of your response to this person of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sins comes. And guess what? There is absolutely no sense of condemnation that hangs over your head. Why? Because the Father... We see his work in the first six, uh, six verses because the Father comes up with this divine, sovereign plan that was devised, that it was a scheme whereby we could come and experience total forgiveness. Our sins, our transgressions could be atoned for. Sins are those things that you do wrong that you don't even necessarily know they're wrong. Transgressions are those things that says, don't do this, you know it's wrong, and you still do it. All of those things, he says, are covered by the forgiveness, by the blood of Jesus Christ. They're removed from every one of us as we respond and become in Christ. How many of you, don't raise your hand, but I bet there's some of you that that came to church today and you're going, you had, a, you had kind of this thing inside you going, oh, man, I don't know if I can go. Oh, I feel so guilty. I did this, that, or the other. How many of you have prayed and you're getting ready to ask God for something that you need and desire? It's a good prayer. It's a good request. And all of a sudden, the enemy of your soul begins to pop up and send these thoughts. You're not worthy. How could you ask God for that? There's not a chance in the world that God's going to do anything for you because you're not worthy. You ever have that? See, this is why I tell the enemy when he does that to me now. I just say, shut up, I'm not talking to you. (laughs) Because I'm not. And can I tell you something else? This is what the redemption and the forgiveness of sin is. Instead of experiencing those reruns, you can say, that has been settled by the cross of Jesus Christ. Get out of here. Listen, when you come to Jesus, loved ones, you, you, you have redemption. You've been brought out of the pawn shop of the world, and you've brought near to God through the cross of Christ, and forgiveness comes. We're going to read more about this in chapter 2. Now, let me, hear you, let me tell you something. Condemnation is such an insidious and subtle way to diminish us and our confidence before God. If God wanted to deem us ineffective and have no affluence, you know what he would do? He would simply leave us with our condemnation and guilt. And it's important to know the difference between these two things. Condemnation comes from the enemy. And whenever you, and I see this, I, 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 it drives me crazy as a pastor. And I, this, is, this is one of the reasons why this message is so important for me. And I pray that you would get some of this. Condemnation comes from the enemy and causes you to run from God. There are people, there are Creeksiders right now that are running from God and running from church. Well, because of what the enemy is doing to them. 
Romans 8.1 says, there is no condemnation, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You get that? In, 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 in. We talked about in Christo, in Christ. Don't run from him. Because condemnation comes if you don't deal with, well, healthy guilt. See, guilt is good. You've seen the, you know, the license plate that says, screw guilt. Well, no, guilt is healthy. It only becomes unhealthy when you don't deal with the guilt in Christ and you allow the enemy then to come and condemn you. Because then you get beat down and pretty soon you just wash out. But see, healthy guilt, really, another word we use in the church is conviction. And what that should do is cause you to run to God, to experience his forgiveness and his grace and his love. Have you ever asked for forgiveness from someone? They put you off, they blew you off. Man, the feelings soon compound and build. And you just, you feel so bad. See, we all, listen, we all sin, friends. We all need ongoing forgiveness. And the cross of Christ provides that past, present, and future. When Christ died on the cross 2,000 years ago, he died for your sins today and in the future. He's not dying again and again. It's already taken care of. Well, then you say, well, why do I need to pray and ask for forgiveness? For you. So you can experience it. So you feel cleansed. There's a catharsis about that that says, oh, good. I've brought it before the Lord. I know it's forgiven. And I can let it go. And I never have to think about it again. Why? Well, because it's of what the Scripture says, the riches of his grace that he has lavished upon every one of us. Now hear me, friends. We need to understand forgiveness from God's perspective. It means that you've been chosen, listen, not to punish that person for whatever they've done to or against you. Because when God, when you have been redeemed and you experience the forgiveness of God, this is the promise. You will not be punished for your past, what you've done, or for your present or your future sins. God will not hold you in judgment if you're in Christ. This is where we don't understand it. This is why we have such a difficult time with forgiving people because we don't understand forgiveness with God. We, you know, now, let me tell you some things that forgiveness isn't. It isn't just that you forget. Oh, just forgive and forget. Try pulling that one off. I'm thankful for Paul's words in Philippians 3 where he says, he doesn't say, I've forgotten everything. He says, I am forgetting. He was a murderer. He assaulted Christians. He had a lot to forget. It doesn't mean you get, just start feeling better. There are some events, loved ones, that are so painful in your life that when you remember them, you will always feel the hurt. One of my classic sayings that I tell everybody, the greater the pain, the deeper the hurt, the longer the healing. That's true physically, and it's true in your soul. So it isn't just you start feeling better about it. Thirdly, it's, it's not that you have to move back. If you have forgiven someone, it doesn't mean that you move back into a destructive relationship. There are some people you may never be able to have a healthy relationship with. And sometimes we forget that as Christ followers. Now, that doesn't mean we just sling and ding and, and slice and dice them. 
but it means we give them room to be, to be who they are, and then sometimes we just have to back off from them. You got people in your life that want to tell you what you should live like? <laughs> it's just me? Tell you what you should do, when you should do it? That's not healthy. See, some people are so damaged or have such self-esteem issues or unresolved soul issues emotionally or socially that they're not in a present place capable of even sustaining a healthy relationship. Now listen, forgiveness can provide a basis for the reestablishment of healthy relationships, but it never demands the reinstatement of a healthy one. Did you get that? It's the, you, you reestablish the relationship, but you don't necessarily reinstate it. My responsibility is that I walk in unity with Chris. And if I've got something against him, he's got something against me, the responsibility before Christ and one another is that we have relationship. But that doesn't mean that we're going to go out to coffee, we're going to go out to lunch, or do anything else together. Because there's just some people that are like oil and water. And we have to understand that and live with that. I used to think, well, why wouldn't everybody like this charming guy? <laughs> and then I started pastoring for a week and realized that, you know something? That's, that's, that's life. But our call is still to have relationship. And the last thing is it isn't compromising or condoning wrong behavior. Forgiveness doesn't deal with guilt or innocence. Hear this. Justice deals with with guilt and innocence. Forgiving someone doesn't mean what they did was okay. What it means is this. You release them from your judgment and give them over to the judgment of Christ because ultimately he is the one that will judge them. I forgive and release because once I do that and only when I do that can the healing of my own soul begin to take place. There's probably people in this room. You still haven't learned to forgive people. And the reason you're wondering why you're not moving forward, the reason why you're wondering that your soul is still somewhat empty and hollow and you don't feel close to God is because, well, you're still wanting to place judgment on people. See, forgiveness isn't an emotion. It's a decision. Did you get that? It's not an emotion. It's a decision. God made the decision in the eons before the world was ever established. He did that for you. How many times do we hear people go, I won't forgive them? Is that emotional or decision? It's pure emotion because they're replaying the hurt. You don't forgive with your memory or your emotions, but with your will. It's a choice that you will not enter into a lifestyle of revenge or punishment or trying to get even. Why is this important? Because it means God has forgiven you and he is never punitive towards you. And if that is true, then Ephesians 1, 7 can't be true. If you believe that God is always punitive towards you, then Ephesians 1, 7 can't be true, that he's forgiven us through redemption. If forgiven, you still can't be punished because of biblical forgiveness. See this forgiveness in the context of redemption. You're released from the threat of punishment from Almighty God. And you're thinking, well, what about sin? Shouldn't it have consequences? 
Well, it not only should, <laughs> but it does. But hear me, it doesn't take God to punish sin. Book of Numbers 32, 23, be sure your sins will find you out. When you wake up the next morning because you've done something awful, wondering or maybe wondering what you did or why you did something, and you feel the effects of it either physically, emotionally, spiritually, that's not God getting in your face saying, see, you bad person, I'm going to wake them up and spank them a little harder. That's not God. God doesn't do that. See, that, that sin, well, is already affecting you because sin hurts you. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. The payback isn't from God, it's from sin. Because you have re been redeemed. God is not judging you anymore. The judgment day will come, but it's not now. And when you're in Christ, you don't get judged for your sins because they've already been judged at the cross. How many people have I heard say it? Maybe some of you had said it. Well, I guess this bad thing is happening to me because God's ticked and he's punishing me. Sick! Get, listen, cast that thought out. I'm sorry, but so many people think that, oh boy, what didn't I do right? Because God must be punishing me. Really? If that is true, what was the cross all about? Why did Jesus die if it wasn't to redeem you from the penalty of sin and wrongdoing? Yet for so many, this is our default thinking. We interpret our painful circumstances as punishment from God. So tragic because it just gives God a bad, bad name. I go to funerals. I hear people go, well, you know, oh, boy. <laughs> Must have happened because God wanted, you know, ticked and wanted them up wherever. Listen, we live where bad things happen, loved ones. Those bad things happen to good people, bad people, and everywhere in between. It doesn't take God to cause an earthquake. It doesn't take God to cause a tsunami. Dis uh, disasters happen because Romans 8, 21 and 22 tells us that even the earth groans because it's under the same curse that you and I are. Now, could God stop it? Yeah, he's God. But he has set things in motion and he allows them to happen. And we have to understand that. And just because we think something is right for us, doesn't mean that God is going to acquiesce in our time. And if we don't, if he doesn't, then it doesn't mean that he's mad at us or punishing us. He is not this kind of punitive God that just at the whim gets ticked. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. If God was out to punish you, me, us, we'd already be dead. <laughs> Think about it. There's always something he could punish us for. Whap, zap. We'd be like these little bug zappers. Oh, boom, you know? <laughs> and that's what God could do. He's that big. He's that great. Be certain today, loved ones, if you're in tough times, rough waters, deep weeds, you have the joy of inviting God into your chaos and circumstances and to ask him to work it for good. That's what he promises to do. There's no condemnation. There's no basis for judgment. Think about it. If you're tried in a court of law and you're acquitted, it would be incredulous for a judge to declare, well, the jury finds you guilty, but you know what? I'm going to condemn you and sentence you to five years in prison. If you're acquitted, if you've been redeemed and bought out of something, there's no sentence. In Christ, you're forgiven. You're acquitted. 
Forgiveness is based on God's grace, not your and my performance once you are in Christ. Well, then I know some of you are thinking, and you're going, well, why worry about doing what is right and obeying God then? And this is the key. Everyone gets worried about this. Well, grace reigns, and God loves me, and I'm forgiven. Woohoo! Why bother obeying God? Well, the first thing I would simply say about that is then you want to check your credentials and see if you're really in Christ. What do you mean? Uh, Probably the best way for me to explain this is because the Father knows best. He knows that sin causes you problem, as we'll see in the behavior part of Ephesians 4 through 6. We're his chosen kids. He knows what's best for us. I shared this story um, from my wife on New Year's Sunday. A lot of people weren't here, and because it fits in so well, I'm going to share it again. Because it gave me the first real glimpse into God's heart when I was started going to church and trying to figure out this whole church thing. Uh, my grandfather loved me and always looked out for me. I actually spent probably three of my early years, most of my, uh, from about the time I was two until I was five, living with them. My grandfather was a quiet, soft-spoken man, but when he but when he disciplined, and even as a three or four or five-year-old, he disciplined me. But this is what I know. He loved me. Um, he was just always there for me. He's the guy. He was my audience of one, my audience of significance growing up because he was the only one uh, growing up that would ever come to my sports events when he could get there. Be my biggest cheerleader. Well, I graduated from high school. My parents took a month-long trip, and they left me in charge of the house. I had a party with some of my friends, and they got up the next morning, and they left. And I was, you know, after they left, I just kind of put my little keister back on the couch to get a little more sleep. There was beer bottles all over the kitchen table and cards because we'd been playing cards most of the night and there were cigars there and beer bottles a lot of different other places so I'm just on the couch kind of crash and all of a sudden my grandfather walks in just checking up on his favorite grandson and, and he walks in walks through the kitchen I'm on the couch I hear somebody walk in I jump up and it's grandpa the most important person in my life at that time he gets to the, uh, to the dining room, and which was next to the living room, and we met there, and all this stuff is on the table. And what does he do? He sits down at the table. So I sit down with him. Hey, Grandpa, could you move the Budweiser things? I, I can't quite see you. And, and, there's just, and, and he, he didn't say anything, and I'm waiting for something to happen big time. And we just talk, and it's chit-chat, and you know, and I'm like, oh my gosh. And I started feeling really guilty because this is my grandpa. And you know what? He didn't say, he was probably there for 20, 30 minutes. He didn't say one thing. And then he gets up and he leaves and he kind of does this Columbo thing. And he looks back at me and he goes, Terry, you're better than this. And he probably, as he always said, probably said he loved me on the way out. But you know what? I I look back on that, and that was one of the key points in my life 
where I said, man, I got to make some decisions because I never wanted to displease that man. You know what I think Grandpa really understood? He realized that I was in an age where I could do what I wanted to do and he couldn't stop me, couldn't beat me. He couldn't change me. I was almost 18. So he realized the only thing that he could do. Grandpa appealed to me on the basis of love and respect and the relationship that we had. At a certain age, that's the only thing you have to draw to. Healthy, listen, healthy obedience is based on love, not performance or the fear of punishment. That's what Jesus says in John 14, 15, and 21. He says, if you love me, you will obey what I command. Because we love him and know what he's done for us. We're chosen, we're called, we're adopted. We've been redeemed, we've been forgiven. Obedience simply becomes the natural outflow of living with him and for him and before him and to express loving obedience, not out of fear, but out of love. And then he makes, he says here in verse 9, he says, we made known the mystery of his will. Uh, this is only made known to those in relationship to him. Mystery means that which is previously hidden or obscured, but is now revealed. Paul is talking about, listen, loved ones, listen, church at Ephesus, listen, church at Creekside. There's a new revelation. Colossians 1 tells us the mystery is this, Christ living in us. See, if we can live and move in that confidence, it'll make all the difference and give you a new life perspective. Because you have this God living in you, it'll change how you see life. Because we live in this confused and conflicted world, don't we? We take God out of the public square and we're shocked at the values that become the norm and acceptable. We outlaw the teaching of biblical values and we're surprised when the crime rate goes up. We disregard marriage covenants and just say we don't get along, which end, we end it, and we wonder why families are exploding and children are imploding in time. We raise money to pass laws to save endangered spotted owls while allowing the genocide of unborn children. Is that mixed up or what? But when you are in Christo, when you are in Christ and he lives in us and we grow and again, we, we, we gain a different perspective on how to view life because our beliefs and our lives are being transformed by the God, the Christ that lives within us. And we begin to move in alignment with his will and what he is doing. The last thing I want to just say, and I'm just going to do a flyby on it. Verses 13 and 14, trumpets and talks about the work of the Spirit in the future. It says, the Holy Spirit has marked you for the future inheritance. Literally, that has the idea of a down payment. It's like an engagement ring. It's what, one of the terms that can mean the original language. It's the promise of what is to come. I love how this speaks to our security in Jesus Christ. We're sealed by the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity and the Godhead. When I asked Trina to marry me after my first year of Bible college, you know what I had to offer her? A growing debt at college, no car, and me. And no inheritance. If I died, she got nothing. But she said yes. Well, as the church, we are called the bride of Christ. 
we are engaged and we have this inheritance coming where Revelation 19, 7 talks about we're going to have this marriage feast of the Lamb. We're going to walk down this aisle in heaven and we're going to celebrate with the groom, Jesus. Can I tell you something? Listen to this. This may not sound like much to you, but our inheritance is Jesus. And we are his inheritance. And you've been sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. As I close, I just want to share one last story and I noted earlier that I love going around town now because I just I just I love going somewhere and seeing Creeksiders. I went to the uh, post office. I had to get some stuff in so it gets sent out Friday like at ten to six. So I zoom down there, I go in, I drop all this stuff off at the mailbox and as I'm coming out I see a Creeksider. And I didn't get clearance to tell this story so I won't say who and Hopefully they'll forgive me if they don't like it. But um, I come out, and uh, she's just getting out of her car, and she's got this really sweet little nice little present that she's going to send to her friend. But we end up and start talking. Post office closes at 6. So we're talking, and we're just talking about kind of some significant things that happened in our marriage group on Thursday night. And we're just going back and forth and talking. And at some point in the conversation, she says this to me. She says, you know why I come to Creekside? It's because I really know you love Jesus. And I thought, wow. That is probably about as good a compliment as I could get. So we're talking. All of a sudden, we hear the doors slam. And, and uh, so she stuck with her present. She couldn't go and uh, do it. So she, hopefully she got it there on Saturday morning. But, you know... Um, I was thinking about that conversation yesterday as I finishing this talk. It really moved me to think that somebody would say that. You know, people say, well, I love your vision. I love your passion. You know, somebody said a couple years ago they liked my preaching, and that was really nice. And, um, but, you know, everybody's got their different things, but I was so moved by that. But then I thought, you know, what would I want people to say? Anybody that comes to Creekside, this is what I want them to leave with. I want you to know. I would want them to say, when I go to Creekside Church, this is what I know. This is it. Jesus loves me. Because when that gets a hold of your heart, loved ones, that will transform so many things of your thinking. And I hope you know I love Jesus. But more importantly, I want you to know that Jesus loves you. Remember the song? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves you. Amen.